So she's in college now, but six years ago, my friend Ted told me this story that I thought, man, I got to share this. They live in Chicago, and they were, uh, they were driving through, through the city to go somewhere, and, and all of a sudden, his, his, his daughter that's, I don't know, probably 12 or 13 at the time, she kind of nudges her dad on the shoulder. She's like, dad, 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 what is that building over there? And he's like snickering. He's like, what are you talking about? That's a church, honey. She responded this way. She said, oh, so what do they use it for? And, and he's like, what? you're a Christian. You've grown up being a part of the church. How do you not know what this building is for and, and what it's about? And see, the beautiful thing is, is that his daughter had grown up in a church plant. She had no idea. <laughs> this is not foreshadowing our future. Maybe it is. I don't know. She, she had no idea that Christians would own a church and use it throughout the week for different things. She had never been in a church building before. She knew that Christians gathered wherever they could to meet and for fellowship. So my question to us this morning is this. What if this reality were to grip our hearts as God's people? What if we were to begin to look at all of life as, as the church, as our identity, instead of primarily associating our faith with a building or a day of the week or a morning? What would that look like in our life if everything in our life began to break down this wall of the sacred and the secular and we were to see that God is interested in all of our lives? What would that look like? Everyday church, that's what we're calling this series. We need to transition from being Sunday Christians to everyday Christians. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in this book that we're preaching through, the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been looking uh, for the last 12 weeks or 11 weeks at Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. And basically what Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about is how God has made us his church. The work of salvation that he has used Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to raise us from death to life. Now, the back of this book, the last three chapters of this book, what the Apostle Paul begins to do is this, is he begins to show us what it looks like to live this grace out in everyday life as the everyday church. I love this quote by uh, the late G.K. Chesterton. He says this, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Now think about that. Isn't that the truth we think a lot of times? Oh, yeah, I, when, when someone says, oh, you're a Christian, you go, yeah, I go to this church. Well, what if we began to look at our lives like this? The fact that we can't go to church because we are the church. That means we are the church no matter where we're at. What, what happens today in Ephesians chapter 3 is this. is Paul, uh, Paul kind of gets caught up. Uh, he, he's, he's starting to pray, and all of a sudden he just kind of gets caught up remembering all the work that God's done for him. And so he kind of goes on this holy rant, and he begins to think about all the work that God did, even when he was like such a terrible sinner. And so today we pick up in this prayer of Paul. And one thing I've noticed about prayer is this, is that God's word and prayer always go hand in glove. They always go together. So and even in Ephesians chapter 1, Verse 18, we catch Paul praying. So he's kind of, he's writing this letter, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I, I just feel like praying right now. So I'm just going to write what I'm praying to these guys as well. And, and, and what he sets this up as in Ephesians 1 is this, how he sets this prayer we're looking at today is this. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You see, prayer 
is not an event for the Apostle Paul. It's a lifestyle. So he says, hope for these Christians that are in this city called Ephesus, which is who this letter was written to, uh, doesn't come from their work. He says that in Ephesians 2, it's by grace you've been saved. And it doesn't come from Paul's freedom from suffering, but rather it comes from this thing that Paul calls spiritual strength. That's what this prayer is for that we're looking at today, is spiritual strength. Now, friends, it might seem like, oh, this is a prayer in the Bible. Let's just kind of overlook this thing. I think what we're looking at today is the key for growth as Christians. If we can get this right, we've got everything right. If we can get this part right here right, this is the main thing. So what's the big idea of where we're going today? It's this, God's love empowers us to live as the everyday church. God's love empowers us to live as the everyday church. If it is God's love that empowers us, and not our self-determination, how do we access this power to live as the everyday church? Well, Paul says it's like this, you access it through prayer. So this is what we're looking at today, this idea that prayer is the work. I I love what E.M. Bounds says in this quote, he says this, to have prayed with will is to have fought well. We do not pray that we might do God's work. How many times do I do that? I pray that, that I could do God's work on his behalf. But he says this, prayer is the work. Prayer is the work of the Christian. You know why? Because here's what prayer does. It acknowledges our, our dependence upon God's strength to do anything in life. So we're going to look at a few things here. Uh, the first thing is the object of prayer. So who are we praying to? The second thing we're going to look at today is this is the content of prayer. What should we be praying about? And the third thing is this, the magnitude of prayer. So let's get in God's word together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 14. If you've got a Bible, open it up. Uh, if not, uh, we'll have it up on the screen for you. But I'm going to read the first two verses of this for us and we'll, we'll dig in. For this reason, Paul says verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. And we're going to stop right there. So what do we notice? We pray to who? The Father. Through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. For this reason, he says. What, so what have we looked at before? The question is, what reason this causes Paul to bow his knees before the, for the Father? Because when we bow our knees, what we're doing is we're humbling ourselves. When someone bows down, it's acknowledging that there's, there's a separation between who we're communicating with and ourselves. There's, there's a visible difference. That's what, we're, that's, what we're, that's what we're resembling when we bow our knees down. What could be anything that Paul said thus far? But I think why, why Paul is compelled to bow his knees to God the Father is because of this idea that God has, because the grace of God has come upon uh, his people and he's made Jews and Gentiles alike. So he's, the gospel is now not just for this specific slice of humanity, the Jews, but it is now for the Gentiles, all people. The gospel has been opened up for everyone, the good news that we can be saved, not by our work, but by his work. That's, that's, what, that's what's causing Paul to bow his knees. He's humbled at the reality that, that God would use him to go proclaim such good news to the world. He's humbled by it. So he says, I bow my knees to the Father. You know, uh, in it we see this kind of this, bold confidence, yet this reverence when he prays. I mean, it's kind of like your kids approach you, right? 
I mean, they, can't, they approach you with reverence. They're like, yes, Father, may I please have an Oreo cookie? Do, do, do your kids approach you like that? They don't approach us like that. So we don't always approach God in this way either. But no matter how we approach him, we've we got to remember two things, that he's our dad and that he's God. Those are the two things when we approach God, we've got to keep in mind, is that he's, he's far above everything he's God, but he's also so near that he's our dad. And I think that helps us kind of keep the tension of what's it look like to approach God, because I think there is, there is a way to approach God. I think we should consider that. I think the way that we approach God kind of says a lot about what we think about God, right? So uh, I don't know about you, but there was a period in my life where I addressed God so formally like he was a stranger. You know what I mean? It was like our father in, in heaven. It was just kind of like we weren't really, I didn't really know him. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to say our father in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. I get that. But the way that our hearts kind of approach the father, we can either be so reverent that we don't even know who he is or like my, my middle school and high school students that I used to pastor in Indiana, uh, we can be so loose that we forget that he's God. So I don't know if you guys remember this huge fad that kind of went about throughout the church. But there was this shirt that came out. It had this like vintage, like 60s picture of Jesus. And it said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I can remember it like everybody's like, yeah, man, Jesus is my homeboy. We're like this. Yeah. And it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, that's true. Jesus is our friend, but he's also sovereign Lord. Now, now we can't forget the fact that he is above all, in all, and through all. Like, that is his identity as well. And I can remember being a little bit frustrated with the imbalance of the way that we approach God. And I may have preached a sermon that was not so kind to people that were wearing that shirt. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So the way that we approach God matters. We've got to see him as Father, but we've also got to see him as God. Paul goes on to say this. He, he begins to talk about this content of prayer. How should we approach him? In, in studying this week, I, I kept stumbling upon this one quote that nobody knows who said it originally. So, we become what we pray. We become what we pray. So, if this is true, then what we pray actually matters. It's just as important for us to look at what Paul does not pray in these seven verses as it is for us to look at what he does pray. Notice that his prayer that we're getting ready to read here in just a second, uh, I want you to notice that it's not physical in nature whatsoever, but rather it's spiritual. And I think one of the best indicators for me in my life to check kind of where I'm at with God, how I'm spiritually doing, is to check the content of what I'm praying about or even if I'm praying. John Stott says this, we all pray about what concerns us and evidently are not concerned with matters that we do not include in our prayers. Ouch. I mean, John, come on, that's a little, that's a little rough there, bro. I mean, it's not that I'm not concerned, I just didn't have time to get to it. Well, the thing that I've noticed is we have time to get to the things that matter most in our lives. That's always the truth. If you have trouble, you know, maybe you work a lot. Maybe your job is very demanding. What's well, a choice that you work a lot? If you uh, spend a lot of time just kind of like slouching around being, being lazy, it's, it's not that you don't have the motivation, it's that you're making a choice, you know, or whether you spend a lot of time with your kids, you're making, on a positive side, you, you're, you're making the choice to spend a lot of time with your family. Uh, we, we make time for what is most important to us. So uh, it's a healthy thing for us to begin asking this question. What is it that I'm not seeing? 
What are my blind spots? In our prayer, the way that we approach God, it really, it really reveals what we think about God. For instance, Jesus, uh, he tells his disciples this in Matthew 6.33. He says, seek first, okay, we should, we should probably pay attention to what comes after this, seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. You see, the disciples were probably, probably had some needs, probably had some things they need, needed God to provide for them. And he says, no, no, no. Seek first the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, you know, hey, look at the birds of the field. Look at the, fly, look at the flowers of the field, the birds of the air. Do you think they don't have needs? Why provide for them? I'll provide for you the exact same way. So Jesus tells us to seek first the spiritual and the physical will be added. All right, so let's dig in. What does it look like to seek the spiritual kingdom of God? Paul gives us a glimpse. He says, here's, here's what the content of our prayer should be. Ephesians 3.16 says this. The first thing that we should pursue is strength. He may grant you to be strengthened, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul is praying for the spirit of God to flood into these Christians' heart with power. Do you know what that word power means? It's dunamis, dynamite. He's praying that the dynamite love of God would flood into their hearts and give them strength to endure whatever is happening in their lives. We need this inner, inner strength that only the Holy Spirit can make known to us. It was a beautiful day on a Thursday afternoon, wasn't it? It was so gorgeous. And so, you know, I was trying to finish up my sermon, and, and I said, you know, it's so beautiful. I'm just going to take a walk. And sometimes it's just good to take a walk, isn't it? So I just began to walk outside, and on my walk, my question to God was this. God, if you're telling us to pray for spiritual strength, can you help show me what spiritual weakness looks like? I want you to show me what it looks like when I'm spiritually weak, because I think then it might help me understand what it means to be spiritually strong and to pray for those things. And here's what God showed me. Basically, he said this to me, that, that spiritual weakness in my life, uh, often appears in physical strength. So when things are going well for me, I'm often spiritually at my worst. Why is this the case? You know, when, whenever things are going well, I have no need of God. I, I don't depend on God when things are going well because I think that things are going well and I don't need God. That's often when I'm spiritually at my weakest point. And I say things like this to myself, and I'm at, I'm at this point a lot. I don't want you guys to be fooled. I'm no different than you. I'm just the guy up here that God's called to plant this church, the biggest sinner of all, like Paul said. But I'm often at this point, I'm praying for, I'm either praying for the physical things, for God to give me the physical things that I need, and it's not bad to pray about that, or I'm not praying at all because I think that I'm good to go. And oftentimes when I'm at, spiritually at my weakest, I say things like this to myself. Come on, pull yourself together. You're better than that. Can't you just do it on your own? The spiritually weak person is an independent person. And I seek to be independent a lot. You know why? Because the world around us tells us that we should be independent. That, that we shouldn't need anyone for anything. But the problem is the scriptures tell us that we desperately need God and one another. That's what it means to be a part of the church. So then I begin to ask this question. What does spiritual strength look like? And point blank, here's what it looks like. It looks like weakness. Listen to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
verses 9 and 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing this to this church in Corinth about what Jesus said to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast, I'll brag about all the, glad, all, all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Our weakness is our strength. And so often we want to protect ourselves and protect uh, protect ourselves in such a way that we don't let others see our weakness. But God says that's your, that's, your, that's your strongest suit as God's people. The world around us screams, screams lies at us. You can't afford to be weak. Someone will jump ahead of you. You'll lose your spot in line. There's no way that you can make it if you're weak. But the scriptures, they, they say something completely different. You are weak. Be what you are. That should be really good news to us this morning because if we're honest with ourselves, we all have this reality that is in the back of our mind at all times that I really can't hold it together. I really can't do it. There's no way that I can make life happen on my own. But we're, we're, we've taught ourselves to pretend that everything's okay. And this is something that God has never asked of us. I confess that most times... I ask God to take away the circumstances that, that appear to make me weak so that I can appear to be strong. And I think this is the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. I, like David, in, in Psalm chapter 51, after he's had an affair, uh, he's cheated on his wife, he has, he has gone and done what he's not supposed to do, seek the Lord most when my sin is most apparent. And see, this is the reason, friends, why we shouldn't be afraid to see our sin. Because when we see our sin, we seek the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing because we're very needy and dependent upon the Lord. So how do we, how do we receive this spiritual strength that we're praying for, this inner strength that God calls us to pray for? Well, I don't know if you guys uh, know much about history, but have you, you, you remember the, the story of the Greeks and the city of Troy and this, uh, this, this giant wooden horse? Uh, so the Greeks had, had a fruitless 10-year siege of attempting to take the city of Troy. Uh, they, they, they wanted to take this city and, and to take it captive so it could be theirs uh, and, to, and to end the war. And so 10 years, still no go. So they're, they're sitting outside the city walls and they're thinking, hey, what can we do here? So the Greeks begin to construct a large wooden horse because when all else fails, construct a large wooden horse. That's the best thing to do, right? And so what did they do as they're constructing this large wooden horse is they begin to hide people inside of the horse. Sounds like a great idea, right? What could go wrong? So the Greeks then pretended to sail away. So they've got some men in this horse. They built this horse. It's sitting out in the middle of the desert or whatever. And, and they, they're like, okay, well, we're just going to leave. So they, they pretend to sail away. That night, the prideful uh, Trojans pulled the large wooden horse into their city and they're like, oh, we're victorious. Let's pull this thing in here. Let's show how we have beaten the Greeks. And that night, the Greek force crept out of the horse. They opened the city gates for the rest of the Greek army, which turned around and they came back and they were waiting at the gate. And the Greeks entered and destroyed the city of Troy, decisively ending the war. Troy was won from the inside out. They had to have a man on the inside to win that war. Your fight against sin is won from the inside out, not the outside in. 
And so what Paul is saying is that when we pray, when we pray to the Lord for spiritual strength, we're asking the Holy Spirit to be inside of us and work his self out in our lives, not to change our circumstances from the outside in. Because uh, the Greeks tried all day long to get inside from the outside. They couldn't do it. They had to be wooed in, kind of brought in uh, by the Trojans. And that's how the battle was won. Prayer is the Trojan horse of the Christian heart. That's how we're changed. That's how we're made more like Jesus, is when we, we glean uh, that strength that comes from God. We pursue that strength that comes from God, and we pursue it through prayer. The very vehicle that ushers in this strength through faith in prayer, the thing that we're seeking is God's love. That's the thing we need to be reminded of. And especially as men, we don't like this idea of needing to be loved. But I can tell you this. You and I need to be loved. We need to know the love of God. Because when we know the love of God, it changes everything. So Paul knows this. This is why he writes it. He says this, uh, Ephesians three seventeen through 19. The second thing about the content of our prayer should be the fact that, that, that God loves us. So love. Uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to what? To overpower, to outwork, to outprove? comprehend, to know with all the saints what is the breadth, what's the length, what's the height, what's the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you and I are saying this, well, I thought that Christ already dwells in us through his spirit. Well, as C.H. Hodge, as Charles Hodge says, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. What Paul is praying for these Ephesians is that, that we would know Christ more. That we wouldn't just be satisfied just to know him, but we would know him more. There would be a, a greater knowledge of the love of God. Because that's what changes our lives. That's what changes uh, everything about us. This is our cure, the, the answer to everything that we long for. This is why this is the key to the Christian life. Paul says, I, I want to lay hold of who Christ is more fully in my heart. I don't want to just think that I know, okay, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, I should probably need that. Well, no, you, the, the hope that Paul has for these Ephesians is that they would know Christ, they would know Christ, and they would know Christ with everything that they do in their lives. When we are strong in our inner being, we realize that life as Christians, it isn't just about avoiding sin. It isn't just about just trying to get by but rather we have a real purpose in God's kingdom. And it's first to know that love and then to make that love known to the world. And you, you and I have an opportunity every way. This is why everything that we do in life has the opportunity to be completely holy because we're saints. God has made us as people. And everything we do in life is an opportunity to make the love of God known. I want you to listen to who Jesus says the blessed ones are. This comes from Matthew chapter 5. I just want you, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it. Just let this wash over you. Here's who Jesus says are the most blessed people in life. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I didn't know it was a good thing to be poor, Jesus. That's interesting. Blessed are those who mourn. What do you mean, Jesus? I thought mourning was a sign of weakness, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, the ones that don't have to make themselves known, for they will inherit the land. They'll receive a reward. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those that are merciful, not paying back others for what they deserve, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, so not the cutthroat and deceitful that we think that we have to live life and, and, and kind of propagate that type of behavior. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Okay, Jesus, you're crossing the line here. For the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessed ones, what do you notice about this? The blessed ones all have one thing in common. Weakness, neediness, dependence. These are the blessed ones. Sometimes this, uh, this strength that we receive from God comes from very unexpected places and situations in life. So I don't know what you're going through this week, this year, this month. I don't know what life has dealt you. But don't be surprised if God is seeking to make himself strong in and through those circumstances that you're trying to avoid. Uh, one of my favorite spiritual writers, his name is Henry Nouwen. One of, one of my favorite books that he wrote that he didn't even want to publish is called uh, The Inner Voice of Love. You know, I didn't used to be like all, you know, all about the love of God until I actually felt the love of God. And then you're like, you don't want anything else, right? It's like, oh, the love of God, yeah, that's the First Corinthians 13 thing. That's pretty cool or whatever. But the love of God is really what satisfies everything in us. So, so he's written all sorts of books, and he's since gone to be with Jesus. But uh, one of the greatest times of darkness in Henry Nouwen's life was in the late 80s when he had accepted a call to go uh, work with the Larsh community. Uh, the Larsh community is in Canada, and it's a group of men and women who struggle with uh, physical disabilities and mental disabilities. And his darkness uh, came from a sense of his own nothingness, as he says. He said, I, I sat around these people, and I began to doubt everything that I'd known about and done in the name of Jesus. And as he ministers to the most vulnerable people at the Larsh community, he sensed himself letting down all of these guards that he had built up to protect himself from people. Things to justify himself. Well, I make this amount of money, or I do this, or yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've seen lots of people come to faith. I've discipled this person. He started to let down all of those walls, and he just let himself be loved. So during that dark year, he began to write this secret journal. And uh, in this secret journal, he began to write all of these uh, imperatives, so these reminders of God's grace in his life. He began to write all of these things down. And he kind of kept them to himself because the Lord made him enter into the basement of his soul to discover things that he'd never known about himself. And for years, he didn't want to let anyone know about this. He didn't want people to see how weak he was, how needy he was, how much he doubted, and how, how much of a mess he was. And then his friend Wendy challenges him, and she says, I don't want you to hide this painful year of your life. Because you've presented all your strength. You know, you've written all these great spiritual books, but you want to hide the very thing that's birthed those? Why do you want to do that? Henry, why do you want to keep us from the pain? You see, here's what she knew. That, that we all have to enter into the basement of our souls. And that when we enter into the basement of our souls and God's love embraces us, something beautiful comes out of it. But the pursuit of going down, deeper down, is a scary thing. Rarely will someone be excited about going down into the basement of your soul. And it's the inner voice of love that I really think Paul is encouraging us to pray for. That we would know the love of God that surpasses understanding. 
So our awareness of what it means to have Christ in us changes everything about how we see life. Circumstances, we begin to see them not as problems. We begin to see them not as things that are taking off of our spiritual trajectory. We begin to see them as blessings because God loves us and he knows far more about us than we know about ourselves. And it's only by being rooted and grounded in his love that Paul tells these guys to pray for uh, that we'll be able to lay a hold of and comprehend the, the multifaceted dimension of God's love. So I love how he uses these four kind of, uh, uh, this four-dimensional kind of love. He says uh, the width or the breadth uh, of his love. Uh, and, and I'm reminded that, that Christ has a love that's wide enough to embrace the whole world. That's what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. God's love can embrace the entire world in Christ. It's, it's long. Uh, in, in Christ, we have a, a love that's long enough to last forever. It will outlive us. That's how long His love is. We have a love that's high. It's high enough to take sinners to heaven, and we have a love that's deep. It's deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. So I don't care where you're at today. The love of God can reach you. The, the question is, will you embrace the love of God this morning? Or will you reject it? Will you stiff arm it like a, like a, running, a tailback running down the, the sideline? Will you stiff arm it or will you embrace the love of God? That's the question we've got to answer this morning. Paul says, pray for these things. Pray that we would be able to embrace the love of God. Pray to know love, not to just be satisfied with knowing love up here. So he goes on to talk about how we, we, we should seek the fullness of God's love as, as we land this point here in Ephesians 3.19. He says, seek the fullness of God. He says this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't know, that's a, that's a pretty bold thing to pray about, right? The fullness of God. We were having a membership interview this week with the Stancils. We are at their house. You know, when you're a small church, the, the pastor will come to your house and do the membership interview. There's another benefit to being a small church, right? No, no so we're, we're sitting at the, at the kitchen table there, and we're talk, hearing their stories and hearing about how they've come to faith in Christ and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and Eli kind of makes mention of something that he's heard before. He's, 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 he's talking about his story. He says, you know, it's like the, the love of God is, is it, it, like to be full of the love of God is like, you know, it's like a 12-ounce like Coke can in the ocean. You think that you're full of God's love, and then you realize that you don't even, you're not even able to comprehend uh, the measure of his love. It's like, you know, his, lo- his love is like the ocean, and I'm like this little 12-ounce can that's kind of filled up. Well, Paul says, pursue the fullness of God's love that we would know it. Our sin and fear and shame, uh, they keep us from understanding and believing the love of God. Have you ever wondered why you run from God? Why you pursue sin? Now, it may be hidden sin. You may, you know, pursue it in your thought life, or you may actually run. I don't know. Maybe both and. We run, we disobey because we don't think God loves us. We think that his love can't be big enough to even bring us back there. And because we don't think he loves us, we pursue false loves. We're romantics, right? We, we love to be loved. And so we will pursue what we think will give us love. What we need to recognize is that the love of God is what, is what fills us, is what, is what can sustain us, is what can, is what can keep us, uh, what will keep us following him all the days uh, of our life. Knowing the love of God uh, uh, is, is interesting because, like I said earlier, we can, we can know the love of God 
or we can kind of really know the love of God. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He says, there's a difference in having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of that loveliness and beauty of holiness and grace, just as there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey's sweet and having a sense of that sweetness. God wants you to have a sense of the sweetness of his love, not just have a sense of the sweetness of his love in your head. These truths are the heart of what God is after for you and I. Paul goes on to, to kind of close this thing by, by talking about this, this. He kind of gives this benediction in the middle of his, of his prayer here. This is the, I think this is the boldest prayer in the Bible, actually. Uh, this, this last sentence, we're going to read the magnitude of prayer. Uh, he says this, uh, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. It's that whole Coke can in the ocean thing. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the power that is work, at work within us, it's not this kind of power. It's not the power that we can prove. The power, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, is through our weakness. That's the power. That's our greatest strength. God is able to do far more than your mind can think. That, that very phrase ought to stun us. It ought to keep us like stuttering and searching for words. That he can do more than we can ask or think. That, that, that his ability and his, and his willingness to show us love far outstretches even where our mind can go. So I want to get real practical on what this looks like to pursue spiritual strength. Because I think we can get real ethereal. And what you could hear, what you could hear coming out of here is I should be praying. That's not what I want you to hear. What I want you to hear is our weakness is our greatest strength. And that we ought to be praying for God to strengthen our inner being. And when that happens, it changes everything about what we're involved in in our circumstances. So real practically speaking, Here's what I'm going to call this. We must learn how to start with the root instead of the fruit of prayer. So what does it look like to pursue the root of prayer? Well, you guys know what trees look like and how fruit grows. The thing about a fruit tree is that the most important part about the fruit tree is really not the fruit. The fruit comes from being rooted in good soil. And so those roots are what produce the fruit. So what does it look like for us to pursue the root of prayer instead of the fruit of prayer? It looks like this. Here's an example of a, of a prayer that would be kind of fruit to root. So start on the outside and come inside. What we're asking God to show us is how to start on the inside and go outside, kind of like the Trojan horse uh, example. It would look like this. An example of how not to pray would be this. Father, I pray that you would change X circumstance. So whether that be you know, I've got this teacher that I don't like. Uh, I've got this job that is really a dead-end job. Uh, my health is not good. So, so we're praying, hey, Father, change these circumstances. Change the fruit. Change the way this apple looks in my life so that I can experience why spiritual reality, which would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So the way not to pray is to say, God, change this circumstance so that I can experience your love. The way that God teaches us to pray is not to focus on the behavior and the circumstance in Ephesians 3, 
but rather to focus on being strengthened on the inside. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. Does he pray to be released from prison? Not one time. In fact, the Ephesians are kind of getting tripped up about it. They're like, you know, you kind of sense this in his writing because they're like, man, he's in prison. How can he be encouraging us? I mean, we're not in prison. So here's how we ought to be praying. We ought to be praying from root to fruit. So, so, so maybe it would look something like this. Father, I pray that you would make me more aware of X. So this spiritual reality. It would be your grace, your love, your mercy. Make this swell inside of me so that I can withstand and resist the enemy's temptation in this circumstance. Why? That's how Paul is teaching us to pray in this prayer. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for, be praying for physical things at all. But I'm just saying what changes realities that are unpleasant most of the time is when God gives you a perspective of how he wants to strengthen you in the midst of them. And this is what I see Paul telling us to pursue is the spiritual kind of inward strength. I began to pray something this week that I'm kind of afraid of, honestly. God, do whatever it takes in my life to keep me dependent upon you. You want to pray a bold prayer? Because no matter what happens in my life, it's like, oh, I'm giving you what you prayed for, Ryan. <laughs> but no, seriously, what if that were our concern? God, keep us needy of you. Keep us dependent. Keep us, like the, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Keep me poor in spirit, God. Keep me hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Big idea of where we're going today is God, it's God's love that empowers us to live as the everyday church. And our work is prayer. And our strong suit, it's our weakness. We have this kind of access to, to the Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you that, that you don't just settle to make the appearance of our life better. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us realize that the things that we are running for, from most in our lives might be the things that are bringing us uh, the greatest amount of spiritual maturity and growth. Father, I pray for New City Church that be strengthened with this, this inner strength that comes from your grace. Father, I pray that as, as, a, as, as just a pastor and as, as, as folks that have other vocations, Lord, that, that we wouldn't seek for just our circumstances to be changed, but we'd seek you in the midst of whatever's going on, that we'd learn how to, to seek the root of what's going on instead of the fruit. But Lord, I also do pray for those that are just, they have, they have uh, circumstances right now that are very tough. This is easy to say when things are going well. Give us eyes to see that you are so much bigger than us and give us a, just a, an extra measure of grace that we can endure and resist the evil one that comes to, to steal, to kill, and destroy us because your grace is so much stronger. Help us to seek that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.